Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. By 2045, white people in America will no longer be the majority. Instead, Latinos, African Americans, Asian Americans, and multiracial Americans will be the majority. And within that group, Latinos are poised to become 25% of the total population, the majority minority, if you will. But despite this Latino explosion, we remain an underrepresented group across the board. From politics to entertainment to sports and business, you'll find Latinos, but more often than not, in smaller roles commensurate to our population. We currently only make up 8.4% of Congress, 2.2% of Fortune 500 CEOs, and we are the most underrepresented group in Hollywood, with a measly 2.7% of roles played by Latinos in major movies and about 6% of roles on television. But what does it even mean that a demographic this big and this diverse is near a majority when we don't have any of the majority power? This is Julissa Arce. And I'm Grace Para, And you're listening to a special series of Crooked Conversations. Over the next four episodes, we will be exploring what it means that Latinos are near a majority status. We'll also be delving into issues around the American Latino identity, history, and civil rights contributions of Latinos in the United States. We'll be discussing culture and breaking down the economic buying power that Latinos hold and the voting potential that our growing population has. And we'll try to answer a very important question. How do we harness our power? In this first episode, we'll be joined by Ed Morales to break down the origins of the term Latinx. Then we speak with spoken word poet and activist Angeli Rodriguez del Orbe about growing up undocumented in the Bronx and her identity as an Afro-Dominicana. But first, we'll talk about the history of Latinos in the U.S., how the demographic is growing, and we'll be discussing the misconceptions that all Latinos are the same. We are not. And we should start off by introducing ourselves. This is Julissa Arce. You've heard me on Crooked Conversations. You've seen me on Twitter. You've read my books, hopefully, or at least have pre-ordered my latest book, Someone Like Me, which is out September 18th. And... Hi, what up? I'm Grace Parra. You have heard me as one of the hosts of Hysteria right here on Crooked Media. I'm a former contributor on The Nightly Show and Comedy Central, uh, as well as an actress and a writer and a host uh, and a generally solid lady, I would say. And Latina. We're both Latinas. We're both Mexican-American Latinas from Texas. Yes, so very specific demographic for sure. But we had been talking over the past few weeks about the fact that National Hispanic Heritage Month is coming up. We realized that we both wanted to do a series that unpacks what Latino identity is all about, to try to get to know um, our own identities a little bit better, and to understand where we as a demographic are going. Right. And to figure out how do we harness our power, because we have elections coming up, but very, very, my accent just came out, very. I, I love it. Very, very. You do this in todo el accent. ¿Por qué no? Very important elections coming up. And we really wanted to have these conversations to figure out a way to harness our power, to harness our political power, and to hopefully get more Latinos out to vote this November. Um, and I think you guys will really enjoy it because we're asking questions that we've had for a long time. And we're bringing in some amazing experts to talk to us and to help answer some of these questions that we've had. 
I mean, I have so many questions about my own identity. And, and I feel like uh, Julissa is the lady to help me unpack it all. I think I am. I think you are yeah. the key to the rest of my happiness. No pressure, <laughs> but it all, it all rests on your shoulders. Um, yeah, so, so we're excited about this four-part series, and we will be um, uh, introducing new topics for each episode. So, Julissa, now Latinos are often viewed as newcomers to America. Um, but, but here's the thing. We've talked about this. Latinos have always been here, even before always. the USA became a country. So educate us a little bit. When and how did Latinos come to the United States? Yeah, like it, it bothers me so much when people are like, when, when people, even even progressives, talk about Latinos as newcomers, like the newcomers, the new generation of Americans. And I'm like, no, we're not a new generation of Americans. We've we've always been here mm-hmm. before, like you said, there was even a USA. Mm-hmm. Right? Latinos, like including mestizos and indigenous people and Latinos that, that are descendants of, of African countries, explored North America almost a century before British colonizers founded Jamestown. Ooh, that's a long time before, people. Yeah, that's because... That's not a couple years. No, it's like centuries before. So, mm-hmm. the, so the U.S. became a country in 1776, as we know from our U.S. history class. And Hamilton. And Hamilton. Spanish conquistadors made landfall in St. Augustine in 1565. So that was centuries before the U.S. became a country. Yeah. yeah. And so therefore, Spanish was the... F- was the first European language that was spoken here. Now, there's all sorts of things that are wrong with even that because, as we know, there were still colonizers and they still came here and and tried to kill all sorts of indigenous people. Right. Um, but there were languages before English that were spoken here, mm-hmm. one of which was Spanish. Mm-hmm. And before that, there were, like, tons of indigenous languages that were spoken here. So mm-hmm. it's not like... It's not like when the U.S. became a country, this land just like appeared. There <laughs> right. were people who were already living here. Right. And there were some cultures of the, that were established yeah, here. exactly. Mm-hmm. And some of those people that were living here already were Mexicans, mm-hmm. right? So like fast forward to the Mexican-American War mm-hmm. and Mexico lost mm-hmm. in that war. Mm-hmm. And there's all sorts of debates as to why Mexico lost in that war, but we won't get into that. <laughs> right. I mean, this is like, you know, from my Mexican history books. <laughs> um, but... When when that happened, almost half of what is now the United States in terms of land uh, was Mexican land. Mm-hmm. And then it became part of the United States because Mexico lost the war. And when that happened, believe it or not, the Mexican territory that became the United States came with Mexicans in it. What? There were Mexicans living here already. Mexicans in Mexico? Right. And indigenous people, yes, in what was Mexico. Amazing right? that this is a shock to to Americans, you know, to modern to modern Americans. Well, I think we just like to forget. Like, I think we just like yeah. to start the history of the United States in 1776 and forget about everything that happened before then. It's clean, right? But it's still not even clean it's because not. even then, you know, when when Mexico became part of of what is now the United States, there were Mexicans that were living there that were given a choice to stay. Mm-hmm. In what would be now America, mm-hmm. North America, United States, mm-hmm. or to go to go to Mexico, what was then Mexico, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of people chose to stay because guess what? People didn't want to move. Moving's like people, a bitch. It it's is a bitch. You just moved. I just moved. I have boxes still. So many boxes. They keep reproducing every day. I come home and I'm like, why are there 40 more boxes? I didn't. There's junk in it. I don't need it. I should have thrown things away. But if I'm an, you know, if I if I'm a human being during this time, I don't want to leave. Why should I pick up and move? Right. Because you've always been there. Because I've and, always been there. And people made you promises. People made promises to you that if you stayed, because that area 
um, you know, Texas, California, uh, New Mexico, they were not very heavily populated areas. Mm -hmm. And so as the U.S. was trying to grow and expand, they wanted people to be there. Mm -hmm. And so because those, those places were not heavily populated, they said, you know what, there's people there already. Let's keep those people. And we're going to tell them that they can keep their land. Mm -hmm. But what happened is that those Mexicans who stayed uh, that who were landowners, all of a sudden there were all these proclamations that were made in English and they didn't speak English because you don't just learn how to speak English from one day to the next. There's no Rosetta Stone, y'all. Right. And even if there was, like, it still takes time. It takes you time. Know? And you're like, why do I need to learn early language? Like, I, everybody around me speaks Spanish yeah. because we're Mexican. So their their languages were being held, uh, were being used against them, basically. Yes, mm -hmm. because all of these proclamations were made that basically said, in order for you to keep your land that we promised you could keep, you have to now fill out all this paperwork. You have to go to court. You have to go through this whole process that you have no idea because you don't speak English. So I you can read. You can read that shit. Mm -hmm. So all of these Mexicans lost their land. They became homeless and they became foreigners in their own land. Mm -hmm. And that's why people think we're newcomers. But we're not. Our land was stolen from us. And mm -hmm. before that, it was stolen from indigenous people. Boom. That's that's the history right there, guys. And it's something we don't talk often enough about. It's actually pretty succinct when you think about it. I mean, you just sum that up very quickly. Uh, and I think it's it's uh, it's just kind of it's deeply, deeply emotional to think about the fact that our cultures are in many ways being erased and being uh, condemned. Um, I mean, it's something, you know, I, I think I think we see on a daily basis as Latin Americans. Yeah, um, and I think, you know, I think it's also our like we also have to take it upon ourselves to learn some of that history. Because, absolutely. Because this this history isn't being taught in schools you mm -hmm. know and so and so people don't know and if you don't know where you came from then it becomes difficult to have a vision for where we're going right right and I mean like there's a, a few other things that I learned as I was doing um, as I've just became I've just become fascinated with with the deep rich history of Latinos Latinx communities in America mm -hmm. but you know like I think even even with like Puerto Ricans for example people don't realize that Puerto Ricans are US citizens mm -hmm. and it's not like it happened yesterday Puerto Ricans gained citizenship back in 1917 mm -hmm. and you wouldn't know because of how we've treated Puerto Ricans with you know with Maria mm -hmm. uh, with Hurricane Maria and the, the devastation that happened there and like you know, President Trump didn't give a shit about them, and is even saying it was an unsung success. Like, I mean, because three thousand people didn't die, because that's just a democratic lie. Thank you so much for that. Right, and Bob Menendez uh, was like, you know what, President Trump, you're right. The hurricane didn't kill killed three thousand people. Your botch response killed three thousand people. You know, even though we have like very little representation in Congress. Like, I think we also have to look back and, 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 and realize that, yes, we're not where we should be, but we also do have a history of being in Congress. The first mm -hmm. senator, the first Latino senator to serve in Congress served in Congress in 1928 in from which, New Mexico. In New Mexico. Interesting. So let's learn our history. Yeah, and like there's just, there's precedent for the kinds of positions of power that we often disassociate with Hispanic identity and the, the, the positions that we view now as like icons for us that, that are that are yet to be achieved. Um, we're here. We are out here, but we're just not out here in the numbers that I think are reflective of our of our population. 
you know, 78% of Latinos in America are citizens and can vote. Well, that's one of our big goals here with this with this show, because we want to make sure that we're mobilizing all of you Latinos out there, all of you younger people, all of you allies out there who are listening to this as well. This is the most pivotal time to register and to get out and vote, because if we harness the power of the Latino vote, we can impact these elections in ways that are rather unexpected at this point. Um, but the, what you're talking about, Julissa, the idea that we have been here for a long time, I hope will instill in our Latino audience members out there uh, a sense of pride and a sense of belonging and a reminder that you do matter and that you are eligible to vote if you're a citizen here and that you should exercise that right. Um, because a lot of us stay at home, a whole lot of us stay at home. We should actually find the statistic on what that is. But if more of us actually got out to the voting booths, we would make a huge difference. You know, when we were going through this, through this, like all of this, like historical facts, like I know yeah. I just recently learned about all these things, like within the last two years yeah. that I really start to think about uh what what are what's the history of my people in yeah, this country? Yeah. Right? Um, I'm wondering, do you? I mean, we've talked about how, you know, for many of us Latinos, like we want to be American and Latino, yeah. and and uh, and some of us even will hide like our Latino identity. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that's in part because we don't know our history in this country? So Completely. we so we feel like if people know we're Latino. They're going to see us as newcomers? Completely. I have a, a couple thoughts on that. So first of all, I I believe that it's not just about a lack of education of the background of Latinos in the United States, but it's also the influence of media and pop culture on us that teaches us somehow implicitly that Latinos are less than, that Latinos are the other, uh, and that if you are going to be a Latino in media or in politics or in business, you have to be attractive as a woman and uh, you'll probably be a cartel member as a guy. There's certain stereotypes that seem to be um, perpetuated. I mean, I'm I'm pretty fit that definition of a Latina. That's Just. very true. That's very true. <laughs> Hi- hypersexualized Julissa over here. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> Neither of us do. Neither of us do. And by the way, one thing about our identity that I want to get into is our personal relationships with being Mexican-American. Because Julissa and I, you, you and I actually have very different um, points of entry to the United States, and I think of different relationships with that with that term, Mexican-American. I mean, I can say, for me, I, I was born uh, in Pampa, Texas. I was raised in Houston, Texas. Um, I consider myself Mexican-American, but for a long time, I denied that I I was Hispanic and tried to pass essentially as like Italian. And for for a, by a long time, I mean like for the first maybe seven years of my life. And this was something that I, I didn't do because my parents had any lack of uh, pride in being in being Hispanic or being Latino, but because I looked at the media and I looked at the people that I went to school with and nobody was Hispanic. And Mexicans were often referred to with derogatory terms. It didn't seem cool. And because, you know, one thing we'll get into is is colorism and passing for white and what how what, um, having different skin tones can do for a, a, a Latina person. Um, but because I, I look kind of ethnically ambiguous, I sort of leaned into that. And it took me a long time. And it took a wave of pop culture embracing Latins in entertainment and in politics for me to come to terms with and accept and, and learn to love my ethnic background. Um, it's been a journey for me, as I think it's probably been a journey for a lot of our listeners out there, for a lot of Latinos out there. Um, and that's something we want to you know discuss. So so that's kind of my relationship with my understanding of being Mexican-American. Julissa, tell, tell us a little bit about yeah, yours. Yeah, I mean, I have the nopal on my forehead, you know, as we say. <laughs> like, I mean, you look at me and you're like, yeah, she's Mexican. I mean, I think. And and you're right that I did have a very different experience because I grew up in Mexico and right. I grew up being very proud of being Mexican. And so when I came to the U.S. when I was 11 
and I was in school and all of a sudden kids were trying to bully me because I was Mexican. I was kind of like, what do you mean? Yeah. Like, I'm like, you know, warrior Aztec princess. <laughs> yeah. Like, You're making fun of my long hair and like, my hair is fucking beautiful. Yeah. Like, you gotta get extensions to get your hair looking fly like mine. <laughs> like, no. So I, 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 I've always been very proud of being uh, Mexican. However, when you were in middle school, <sighs> and, you know, I'm gonna... When you're in middle school, people are mean, mm-hmm. and you want to have friends. And so, therefore, everything about my identity, I want it to be American. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, what it meant to be American was to be like an all-American cheerleader blonde girl, Uh right? Like that was the image I had of what an all-American girl looked like. Uh And part of the reason I wrote this Someone Like Me book is because I want kids that age, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, to read books and feel like their stories are so fucking important that there's books written about it. I love that. But but yeah, so like I did have a different experience because I, I loved being Mexican. And then when I got here, I felt like I had to... I had to like oppress all of those parts of me to be to be included in America. And then of course for me there was this extra layer of like I was undocumented. Right. So I really, really wanted to pass for American. Like I I had to learn how to hide and I had to learn how to hide behind my good English and my academic accomplishments and my pom poms. Right, know? right. Because because I didn't want anybody to suspect that I was undocumented. Right. So there is like a whole lot of shit to unpack. There is. And, and there's a lot of range of what it means to be a Latino in the U.S. too. And that's part of why Julius and I are so excited to do this this show uh, and explore this over the next four episodes because we know that Latinos out there who are listening to this, everybody's got a unique journey to how they came about uh, how they beca- became Latin American in the United States. And uh, Julissa and I represent just two of those stories. But what's important is that we not try to, uh, you know, falsely identify one way or another. Mm-hmm. I think I would be, uh, like, for example, Spanish is, is uh, and our relationship with Spanish, too, is another way that, that we kind of identify. It's a point of entry for our, our ethnicity. Um, I, for example, grew up speaking both languages in my house, but I'm definitely, I would say I'm fluent in Spanish and not fully bilingual by any means. Um, having like an entire conversation, an entire interview in, in Spanish would be more of a challenge. Trying to be funny in Spanish, by the way, is so hard. As a comedian, <laughs> it's like there, there's never been a moment that I feel happier and more excited than when I tell a joke in Spanish, which I think has happened twice. Once was at a 99 cent store seven years ago, and I still remember the woman's face. I don't even know what the joke was, but I was like, like, oh, I just told a joke in Spanish. And <laughs> I felt so excited. Um, you know, and, and, and we also have the, the influence of, of, uh, of our parents as well. And so, like, I, I will say that my, my parents came to the States. Uh, well, their relationships with, with uh, being Mexican-American are, are, are very intriguing as well. I'm sure we'll unpack some of that. Um, but my parents and my three older brothers came to the States in the 70s, and their relationship to the U.S. was one of trying to assimilate as quickly as possible as well. Mm-hmm. So any any cultural touchstone that they could attach themselves to, they did. Um, I know my, my brother Renee is a big fan of OU football, for instance, because when they lived in Oklahoma... That Wait, was, the Sooners? The Sooners. Ew. Ew, really? Hook em horns. Oh, boy. Okay, that's... Yeah, I know. I, I actually I saw the Sooners play at the Rose Bowl this past year, and it was a lot of fun. Did they lose? Yes. Of course. <laughs> That's what happens when you're a Sooner fan. You, I like, know who, you know who won the 2005 National Championship at the Rose Bowl? Tell me, Julie. The Texas Longhorns. <laughs> Greatest football game 
ever. <laughs> this is this is just going to be like a, a stand for the Longhorns. Right yeah, now. it is. This whole podcast is going to be an O to it. Um, and and my brother's like relationship with the Sooners is so interesting because as a kid, the only language that he spoke that was similar to the kids that he went to school with was football. So for him, like the part of what was really cool to go to the Rose Bowl last year, uh, what made it very cool was that he was he is now in his uh, in his forties. He's older than I am. Um, he went with a group of friends, that, like all white friends, that he's been friends with since he was a kid. And it's really interesting seeing that relationship evolve. Um, but anyway, I, I bring up sports because I think it's another point of entry for uh, identification. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if the cover of my uh, the cover of my book is me doing the splits in a cheerleading outfit. <laughs> it's really I cute. really because I really thought that if I could be a cheerleader and if I could understand sports, mm-hmm. uh, that that would that that has always been my entry mm-hmm. to America. By the way, like. Uh, when I was in high school living in San Antonio being a Spurs fan, I, I couldn't talk about any pop culture references because right. I wasn't allowed to watch MTV because my parents thought that I would get pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> That's how that works. MTV. You watch the real world uh, and then you get pregnant. <laughs> basically. So I was not allowed to watch MTV. I didn't grow up watching, you know, my, my husband all the time, anytime he makes a reference to like a movie he watched when he was a kid and I'm like, I've never seen that movie. He's like, you never had a childhood. But... So I couldn't talk about those things, but I could talk about Avery Johnson and the Admiral and Tim Duncan, and I could talk about the statistics of the game. And and fast forward to my time at Goldman Sachs, there was a bunch, I I couldn't talk to people about golf. Mm -hmm. I couldn't talk to people about going to ski in fucking Aspen or, you know, a house in the Hamptons of the summer. I mean, eventually I did because eventually I did all those things. Yeah, you did. But... (laughs) What I could talk to people about was about football, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. And the fact that I could speak football, it, it gave me a way into American culture. And so, you know, for a lot of people uh, being Latino or Latinx or Hispanic, uh, I'm starting to l- l- like the the term Hispanic less and less, like every time I say it. Yeah, even as I'm saying it right now. But, <laughs> uh, we're going to uh, unpack the differences between those words too, by the way, because there are big differences. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, but for a lot of people... Do they think that all of these terms are also interchangeably with Mexican? Oh, totally. And even within the Latino community, people get really mad when they get called Mexican. Totally. They're like, I'm not a Mexican. I am Colombian or Honduran. And like, I, I, I try not to get offended when people say that because I'm like, being Mexican is not a bad thing. But I understand that when you're not Mexican mm-hmm. and you get called Mexican and Mexican stories and narrative tends to take over the whole Latino conversation, like I can understand why you want to speak up for yourself and be like, I'm not Mexican, right? right. Because we're not. We're not all, all Mexican. Mexican. No, and, and, and a couple things about that. First, I, I think it is important, we've mentioned this, but but we represent Mexican-American millennials who come from Texas, but we understand that the that, that the breadth of Latino identity is much broader than that. So one of the things we're trying to do in this podcast is to be inclusive of other voices and people from other countries. We do, of course, understand that Mexicans do re- make up the majority of- 60% of, of the 58 million Latinos yeah. in America. That's a, that's a lot. It's a, big, it's a big majority. But that said, that we are not all from Mexico by any means. And and what I think we're seeing with uh, the dawn of this new administration in the last couple of years is a bastardization of of what it means to be Mexican. Any person who is Latino is basically called Mexican, which is not which is just, it's just it's ignorance and it's it's not true and it's I think damning to uh, people from other countries too. Yeah, from but smaller and, Latin and you know what? Countries. That's also why that's also why we in the La- in the Latino community in the Latinx community understood that when Trump said Mexicans are rapist. 
and criminals, et cetera, et cetera. We knew what he really meant. Yes. It wasn't just Mexicans. It was the Latinx community. Yes. Right? Yes. And we understood that because partly because of how people use this words interchangeably. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's 60% Mexican, but there's also really large populations of Salvadorians and Cubans. Guatemalans. And Guatemalans, mm-hmm. you know. So so we're not all Mexican. Mm-hmm. Let's just leave it at that. We're not all Mexican. But, but you have in us two hosts who are very proud Mexican-Americans. Okay, so Julissa, 78% of Latinos living in the U.S. are citizens. Mm-hmm. Why is it that it seems like immigration is the only thing that Latinos care about or it's assumed that we care about. Yeah. I, I do think I do think that immigration is a big issue for Latinos, right? Like uh and and at the same time like immigration is not a Latino only issue. We know that it affects uh the black community disproportionately as well because black immigrants are deported at higher rates than any other immigrant. So 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 there's that, but Latinos do care about immigration. It's a big issue for us, but it's not the most important issue. Mm-hmm. If you look at sort of some of the research that has been done about issues that Latinos do care about, Latinos care about jobs, healthcare, and education before they care about immigration. Jobs, healthcare, education before we even care about immigration. Just I, I just I we should just sit in that for a second because it's just not discussed often enough. And I think also, uh, Julissa, you and I have stories about this. As women in in entertainment and in media, we are often called upon to talk almost exclusively about immigration, and that's that's something that's that's important to us for sure. But by no means are we only should we should we be categorized as people who can only talk about that. Right. And let me tell you why, because. When there is 22 per- 22% of Latinos living in poverty and only 27% of Latinos have high school degrees and 15% of Latinos have college degrees and Latinas make 54 cents on the dollar mm. to what a white male makes and the medium income for Latinos in this country is almost $15,000 less than the national average and almost $17,000 less than white Americans make, you better damn believe that we care about jobs and health care and education. Girl. I'm making the biggest stank face right now. It is. I'm not happy. I am unhappy with all those statistics. But yeah, yeah because right. they're dire. Yeah, and they're dire. Hell yeah, we care about these things. Like, yeah. of course, we care about where our children are going to go to school, right? Mm-hmm. And we recognize and realize that there is a pipeline here. If our kids are not getting good education in even like elementary school, and so they're not learning how to read, and they're not getting high school diplomas, and they're not going to college and graduating from college, and how can we have the types of jobs that are going to give us the economic power to make change in this country? Mm-hmm. How are we going to have people that are going to be prepared to run for Congress or to run Fortune 500 companies? It all starts at a bare basic level of where are our kids going to school? What mm-hmm. kind of education are they getting? And if our kid gets sick, are we able to take them to the doctor? Are we able to take ourselves to the doctor? Mm-hmm. And so people have to start stop treating us and and candidates need to stop talking to us as though we are one issue voter population because we're not mm-hmm. and you know it's it's this is why it's so important to vote mm-hmm. right because we've got to let candidates know that we care about more like we don't I don't want to be the little poster immigration child and then every time there's an election someone calls me so that I can oh, go Julie stand next the to lady. them yeah, right. exactly. like, oh you know thing. she was a dreamer and so let's get her on here right. I'm like okay yes like I immigration is important and when, when you think about all the fucking issues that are happening with children still being separated like 500 kids are still separated from their families and everybody seems to have forgotten that there is no dream act and DACA is hanging on by a fucking life support uh-huh. and dreamers every single day have to worry about their future we care about all those things yes 
that doesn't mean that we don't have the capacity to fucking care about other things too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I just, I, you know, I, I think that that when we see more people who look like us in positions of power, then these identifying features that you're mentioning, the statistics that you bring up, Julissa, so eloquently, are going to be front and center because people that we vote for are going to know these things. Right now, we just have, you know, uh, there's a lot of ignorance out there about about uh, these statistics. So. Yeah, and we also, you know, we also have to take some responsibility. Uh, ourselves within our community to realize that some of the, some of the reason uh, we have officials in Congress representing us that don't represent our best interests mm-hmm. is because we don't go out and vote. Mm-hmm. And it's not just voting in in sort of presidential elections. And yes, that's right. important. And it's important that you go out and you vote on November 6th. That's really important. However, you know, it's also really important um to vote in in more local elections than that. Like who are the people in your school boards that are making decisions for your children? Mm-hmm. If you don't know who's your, who's representing your school board, then how can you demand more, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So so we also have to take some responsibility within our own community to say we are tired of this mm-hmm. and we're going to show up to vote and stop actually like threat I feel like sometimes we use like the Latino vote as like a threat like if you don't do this, I'm gonna vote you out of office. But yeah. then we like go on with our lives and we forget. And we don't and even we go don't. show up and vote. Okay, so like if you're if you're serious about voting and making change and being informed, you know, not just like picking the person with your la- with like a Latino last name to vote <laughs> to vote because I know people that do that. I've done it a couple Again, times. A couple Grace, times. I know. Advertise these things. I know. I'm an embarrassment. <laughs> it's true. Um, but what's really cool is that. Somebody else has done a lot of this work for us. Who for has? us to be informed. Who has? Informed citizens and informed voters. Crooked Media. <gasps> so you can go to votesaveamerica.com and you can find all sorts of information about uh, where to go vote. You can see a sample ballot. That's the thing I'm most excited about mm-hmm. because otherwise you show up and you're like, don't really know who you're voting for and you just think about the big elections. Mm-hmm. But what's really cool is that you can actually see a whole ballot, a sample ballot of who you should be, who's on, what issues are on on the voting block, and and what candidates are there, so that once you go in to vote, you can really be informed. It's a it's a one stop shop for all your voting questions and needs and queries and uh, uh, thoughts, and uh, it's it's got a very very easy interface. Uh, we highly recommend it. So check it out, votesaveamerica.com. We'll be right back. If you wear contacts, then you know how annoying it is to have to get a prescription year after year just to be able to buy more contacts. In fact, I see what the last day of my prescription is and then I buy a whole new year's worth of contacts so that I can get two years worth of contacts with that same prescription. Oh, because it's so annoying. It's the most annoying thing. I wear contacts and because my eyes are terrible. My personality is also bad. I like your personality. I don't know about your contacts. Thank you. (laughs) But that's why I'm so happy to discover simple contacts. They're changing all of the terrible things by using technology to make renewing your prescription and buying contacts simple. I'm all yours for this because I need simplicity. Well, let me tell you how it works. Okay. Using your phone or computer, you can take the simple contacts vision test in five minutes from literally anywhere. (gasps) A real doctor reviews your test in 24 hours, writes your new prescription, and boom, a fresh apply of your brand new lenses in your door. Do they do colored contact lenses? That's a good question. We because should ask. Because I have no interest in changing my eye color, but I think it could be funny. 
Just yeah, to, to I go. wanted to have some like purple eyes for sure. Like why not? What? Yeah, no more appointments, no more waiting rooms, no more overpaying. If you have an unexpired prescription, just upload a photo of it or your doctor's info and order your new lenses for a great price. I'm very into this. Me too. I think that's really great. Why do I have to leave my house to go get an eye doctor prescription every single year? My The way that I use screens these days too, like just this blue light constantly in, in my grill, my contact prescription is changing all the time. I think I have cataracts. Would you like to save some money? Yes. Okay. So to save $20 on your lenses, just go to simplecontacts.com slash crookedconvos or enter the code crookedconvos at checkout. Mm. I want to mention that this isn't a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam. You still need those occasionally. But this is a much more convenient way to renew a prescription and reorder your contacts if your vision hasn't changed. Yes, yeah, so if you have cataracts like Grace Parra over here, still go into your doctor. But for those of you who don't, which is like 99% of you. Like me. Do this. Mm-hmm. So again, check out Simple Contacts and get $20 off by going to simplecontacts.com slash crookedconvos or just enter the code Cricket Convos at checkout and give it a try and thank me later. Cataracts. Don't get them. Don't get them. But get Simple Contacts. Oh, Julissa. Okay, so one of the most important things we do for our health every day is brushing our teeth. I'm obsessed with it. I do it constantly. It's it's bad. It's probably breaking down the enamel I, on my teeth. I only do it three times a day. I mean, most times twice a day, to be honest. That's that's pretty good. I think that's probably above the national average. There's that's, a lot of that's kind of gross. Filthy people out there, but a lot of us don't do it properly. Quip is a better electric toothbrush created by dentists and teeth designers. Quip was designed to make brushing teeth your teeth. Designer. Yeah, I said teeth designer, and I stand by that because this this copy says by dentists and designers. But I like to believe that these designers specifically are in the business of teeth designer. Got designing. It. Quip was designed to make brushing your teeth more simple, more affordable, and even enjoyable. I do genuinely enjoy brushing my teeth, particularly in the shower. That's, How do you feel about it? You, you give me. She, Julie's is giving me the dirtiest look right now. It's I. It's not a dirty look. It's a. I don't understand that. Look. Really? Dude, no. you get so much accomplished if you just consolidate everything in the shower. But Multi- then your toothbrush is in the shower. You can t- I take I carry it in with me and I carry it out. Mm, that's too much work. <laughs> the Quip toothbrush features sensitive sonic vibrations. Mm, gentle enough on your sensitive gums. It also has a built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides, helping guide a full and even clean. I love I love a full clean. <laughs> Quip doesn't require a clunky charger and runs for three months on one charge. And since three out of four of us use bristles that are old and worn out, Quip delivers new brush heads automatically, ooh, I like this, on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just five bucks. Very affordable, guys. Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the ADA, the American Dental Association, and it has thousands of verified five-star reviews. I'm glad that they said they're verified because yeah. I just learned about how there's like all these like fake reviews for things. Yeah. People can pay people to review. Yeah. And fake reviews are the new fake news. So I am glad this has verified five star reviews. Verified, baby. I am really excited to try out Quip. I can't wait. Uh, They're backed by over 20,000 dental professionals. Uh, Starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash crooked convos right now, you will get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash crooked convos. 
Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. So we keep using identifying words interchangeably. We've used Latino, we've used Hispanic, we've used Latinx, Latinx. Um, even the pronunciation of that is something that, that we've kind of used interchangeably. So here to discuss the origins of these terms and more, we have adjunct professor from Columbia University Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Race, who also has a new book coming out called Latinx, The New Force in American Politics and Culture. It's Ed Morales. Good to meet you. Because of your new book, we just figured that you would be the exact perfect person to talk to uh, about the specific area that we're discussing, which is the origins of the term Latinx. And Great. Julissa and I, when we when we first were talking uh, about the show and how to present it, we both we we said the word Latinx in to totally different ways. I was like Latinx, and Julissa uh -huh. was like Latinx. Yeah. yeah, and we were both like, wait, what? Uh -huh. wait, is one of us wrong? Are we both right? <laughs> I don't know. Can you can you start? Yeah, so we can we start, start there? there? How? Uh -huh. What is a proper right? pronunciation of Latinx? Geez, I don't know. I mean, I said Latinx out of peer pressure, and I, too, prefer Latinx. But that's because for my book, like kind of like one of the catchphrases I'm using is that Latinx refers to how um, Latinos are the X factor in America's race debate. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> I like this new concept that Latinx is is yeah. taking. Yeah. Why why do you think that why do you think that we needed a term outside mm. of of Latino? I mean, I know that you've mm. written that the term Hispanic is a way to assimilate into American culture while keeping some ethnic pride and maybe you know people didn't like that Hispanic term so they came up with Latino. Right. So why the need for yet another term? Well, to I describe first, us. Okay, sorry. I, I first started um, noticing it among my students. Um, I mean, I've heard this theory that it actually, th there was a, a, something that happened in, among Latin American academics, which is surprising to me. You know, over the last 10 or so years where LGBTQ uh, movements have, you know, become more and more prominent, as you know, like in um, Spanish and other Romance languages, uh, all nouns are designated a gender. And so... Um, is it is it gender yeah. or is it more like a masculine feminine? Well, thing? I mean, yeah, I mean it's a metaphor for gender, I guess, because you know we can't imagine things like the table being feminine or the air being masculine. Or, so, but but for my some air reason, is always masculine for the record. <laughs> right. Just I breathe I breathe yeah. straight up male H two O. I don't know what that means. It sounds disgusting. Actually, sometimes I like <laughs> to say that I, I would like to interview those. Uh, pious Spanish people of whatever the 14th or 15th century who just gave the all objects um, a masculine or feminine designation and why. Um, so, but it, it, you know, that's, it remains a fact, you know, so when you, when you break it down to um, how Latinos want to identify themselves or how Latinx want to identify themselves, the gender became an issue because, you know, at first we had Latino, then rightly because of, uh, you know, women's empowerment and fem feminism that was critiqued and um, 
Latina. Then there became this Latina slash O, or Lat- actually the first one was Latino slash A to include women. Then, then there was Latina slash O, so as not to have the dominance of the O over the A. Then came this other thing, Latinao, which looks like the at sign in uh, internet language, in which the A is inside of the O. To, to talk a little bit more about something Julissa brought up as well, is is the term Latino and its different variations a point of, of pride uh, and, and maybe mm-hmm. more so than the term Hispanic? Because given that Hispanic has its origins in Spain, it does right. feel like there's, there's um, controversy between those two. We use them almost synonymously, yeah. but do you think that's, that's correct yeah. to Some use? people use mm-hmm. it synonymously. Some people do. And I, I think yeah. with my background, I, I use Hispanic and Latino mm-hmm. synonymously. Is that incorrect? Have I been doing it wrong? Well, you know, I mean, it's hard to say what's correct and incorrect. You know, like in, in my writing about it, um, that people have gravitated towards Hispanic. The um, a lot of people who gravitated towards Hispanic tend to be more conservative because maybe they agree with the idea of creating this sort of ethnic European identity um, from you know the people that we're from by saying, well, it's we're like it's sort of like being Irish American or Italian American, and Hispanic is sort of a way of saying Spanish American. Yeah, I mean, Latinx has become more and more popular. Um, it's really a metaphor for um, the way that also our racial identities are fluid, you know, and how sometimes we can feel maybe part European or part indigenous or part African, and so we sort of slide between those identities. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so welcomed by uh, Latinx uh, people, that sense of, um, of fluidity and intersectionality, you know, which uh, a lot of the feminist movements and the Mexican-American uh, feminists and Chicano feminists really kind of predicted a lot of what was going is going on now with intersectionality. So um, I think it's become uh, really popular. You know, I follow a lot of young people on Twitter, and I just see people using it in a non-forced way, and people really embrace it. So um, I think it's significant, too, that um, Latinos are the first group to really adopt a label. Well, I mean, we haven't done it entirely yet, but we're increasingly adopting a, la- a label that um, acknowledges this debate about, um, you know, non-binary gender identification. Ed Morales, thank you so much for this. I feel like we could continue talking to you for much longer, uh, but I'm very excited about your book, and uh, congratulations on the release of that, which is going to be out very soon, uh, to coincide with National Hispanic Heritage Month, too. So um, go out and buy that, and uh, thank you so much, Ed. We really appreciate it. Oh, the pleasure is mine. You know, give me a shout when you're in New York. You know it. Quick question, which I forgot to ask in the Mm -hmm. thing. What's the plural for Latinx? Like, if I'm trying to say, if I'm trying to place Latinos with Latinx, Latinx. is it just Latinx? <laughs> Latinx. <laughs> um, that's funny. Is there a plural for this? We, we had a discussion about that um, in the copy editing segment of doing my book, and we decided to leave it without the S. Some people use the S, mm. but it Lat- seems So awkward. how would you say that? Latinx S? Yeah, no, we just don't say it. I mean, because aren't there... Some I think there's some French words or something that are plural without adding the S, and we've accepted it in English. I'm sorry, I don't remember the example. Uh, we need a mayor yeah. of of, or, of Latino town to just decide <laughs> this, and then you know have it, like a little Latino Congress, <laughs> and then they can ratify if need be. It looks prettier without the S, and and you know it's for sure. Yeah, it's just you know, so it's a kind of a collective plural without putting the right. S on it. Yeah.
And here with us now is Nangeli Rodriguez del Orbe, who is a Bronx-raced Afro-Dominican poet who uses her voice to create awareness around issues of race, gender, and immigration. And we are going to discuss the multitudes of the Latino identity. So moving from New York to L.A., where I feel like in New York, the Latinx population community is so much more diverse uh, where, you know, if you're like if you're in Spanish Harlem, like you can find Mexicans there and Dominicans and Puerto Ricans. And then and then I think in L.A., at least my experience as a Mexican-American woman in L.A. has been so much more um Mexican centric. Mm-hmm. How how has your experience been being a Dominican woman in LA? It's been kind of lonely. I'm not gonna lie. I think what's even more shocking to me is that people are just completely unaware that like Black Latinos exist. Oh mm-hmm. yeah. And I don't mean like people that are you know half Latino, um, like non-Black, and then like African American. I mean just Latino from from the jump, right? Mm-hmm. So. What's been happening to me a lot is that people are really shocked when I speak Spanish. Mm. So, like, elderly people usually come to me or, like, when they're approaching me, they're, like, struggling with their English. And when I speak, I'm like, oh, si, hablo español. (laughs) They are completely shocked. Mm-hmm. And even at work, like I got asked a few times, like, "Oh, so you you're you're fluent in Spanish?" I'm like, "I English is my second language." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so you're having to like educate a lot of people. Yes, and you know, I I see a lot of the divide that I didn't get to see in New York between like African Americans and Latinos. That mm-hmm. it's completely new to me mm-hmm. because in New York, people read my face and who I am as Dominican right away or Puerto Rican. And here they're completely shocked that I'm I'm black and speaking Spanish. Mm-hmm. So usually like people read me as African American. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. a lot of conversations around that. And you know, also people that are that once I speak Spanish their whole like their whole energy changes and shifts. Like they completely they're, they're completely comfortable with me and joking around. Something that like before I speak Spanish it's just just they just very restrained. They're trying yeah. to figure yeah. you out yeah. some for some reason, why do you think it is that uh, Afro Latino identity is so unspoken and so confusing to so many people? I think it has a lot to do with Latinx media, um, and you don't see Latinos in Latinx media at all. And we depend a lot in 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 you know in Latinx media to like bring us what Latinidad is. So like places like Univision and Telemundo. Growing up, I never saw black Latinos on oh, TV. Yeah. And then the first time that I recall seeing a black Latina, she was a sex worker in mm. a novella. Wow. And she was the only black Latina there. Wow. Yeah. You know, growing up in Mexico and watching telenovelas, it was still like the lighter skin Mexicans were the ones on the novelas. Like the, the and, it, and it continues today because I was just in Mexico a couple of weeks ago and we were just flipping through channels. And there was one girl who was like this blonde, blue-eyed girl, and she is Mexican. And there are Mexicans and Latinos that are white Latinos and that look like that. And so, you know, not not anything against people who look like that, but but it doesn't represent what a large majority of Mexicans look like. And so then you grow up thinking, that's what I want to look like. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. what you start believing is beautiful, is when it looks like that, and not when it looks like you. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And in, in Dominican Republic, I remember being a little girl and the novelas that I would watch were Mexican novelas. And the people that I saw and the women that I saw were were white Latinas. 
So Is that I your grew, first image of beauty? Yes. Yeah. So I grew up wanting to be lighter skin. And I, I still recall, you know, asking my mom why she didn't pass on her skin color to me. Hmm. Because my mom is lighter skin. Mm-hmm. And I remember, like, pointing at my eyebrows and saying, why can't all my hair be, like, this straight? And <laughs> it was all coming from, like, the images that I was seeing. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until, like, what, like, 2013 that I that I stopped straightening my hair and just started letting my hair be curly and I started embracing my skin tone. Mm-hmm. But it took a lot of unlearning and, and, and reading and looking for Afro-Latino representation online. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so big right now that since we're not seeing ourselves on TV, we're creating our own platforms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. I, when, well, one of the... Um, I, I follow you on Instagram and... Um, Love your account. You guys need to follow Daniela for sure. Yes. What's your Instagram <laughs> okay. handle? Oh, God. It's so long. <laughs> <laughs> so it's Afro Dominican X Things. So Afro Dominican X and Things. Great. Okay. Um, and one of the poems that I saw on your page, uh, it's called a uh, reclamation. No, it's called um, a point of, of reclamation for Papi. Yes. Right. And so you talk about reconnecting with your father and him the very first question asking about your partner is not whether he's kind or he's nice but asking you is he black definitely yeah so i reconnected with my dad and it's something that i grew up with uh, grew up listening to as well something called mejorar la raza yep Mm -hmm. and it's that's very big in dominican culture where you always have to marry lighter Mm -hmm. or procreate children with lighter um lighter people and my dad actually you know only dated lighter skinned women so imagine me growing up darker than all the women he ever he, you know he ever dated and hearing over and over again that i needed to marry lighter so i could have better looking children hmm. and you know it's something that is so ingrained that he doesn't see what's wrong with it mm-hmm. in his mind he's looking out for me he right. wants the best for me mm-hmm. and that means like marrying like light, a lighter person right yeah by the way i think that that's that transcends sort of um because, I mean, in Mexican culture, the same thing. Like, my dad told me the same thing, right? Like, you have to, uh, when, when I was listening to your poem and hearing that phrase, mejorar la raza, like, mm-hmm. I got my skin crawled because I've been told that same thing before. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you, you, you can't date someone who's black because, um, because then I think, I think to your point about our parents wanting what's what they think is best for us. But I also think it's up to us to sort of change that perspective and change that racism within the Hispanic, within the Latino community, because we know that it exists. And until we start kind of pushing back, which is what what I loved about your poem, where you're like telling your dad, like, dad, I am black. Yo soy negra. And like reclaiming your own identity for yourself. I think it's so powerful and beautiful. And more of us need to do that. My parents are just happy that anybody wants to procreate with me. <laughs> so they'll, they'll take what they can get. There's one there's one um, one other aspect uh, that I wanted to touch on with you, which is um, you mentioned that the way that you look, people here in L.A. in particular will they will they will just assume that you're African-American. Yes. Right. Not that you have any kind of Latinoness in you. And um, you also grew up being undocumented. And I'm wondering whether there was anything about the way that you look that helped you to hide being undocumented. And what I mean by that is the following. So I was undocumented for a long time and I tried to hide the fact that I was undocumented by trying to speak perfect English, by trying to appear like a normal teenage 
girl in America. Uh, and so I try to hide as much as possible the fact that I was undocumented. I'm wondering what was your experience growing up undocumented and being an Afro-Latina? It was actually the complete opposite. I couldn't fit in because in New York, I, I, I look a lot like the Dominican identity. You know, so I, w- I, I could never pass. So and, you know, my accent as well. You know, I, I, I w- it was very obvious that I first I was not born here. And second, that I was not actually African-American. In fact, you know, I was even more at risk because at the at the time that I was growing up in the Bronx, you know, stop and frisk was a thing mm-hmm. where, you know, black and brown people were targeted every single day. And growing up in the Bronx in a very, very, very monitor community and over police community, I actually was stopped before mm-hmm. and it wasn't until i was applying for law school and i was and i was doing the research that i realized that i was actually when i when i was stopped it was about 2011 and it was uh, it was the highest year of stops regarding like stop and frisk mm-hmm. so i was actually part of the quota mm-hmm. so a lot of the misconceptions about black immigrants is that they actually fit right in when in fact that's not true mm-hmm. because mass incarceration places us at like a double risk right right so not only are you targeted by ice or like you know immigrant shit enforcement but, but you're targeted by police mm-hmm. and if you look at the research you see that black immigrants are disproportionately in deportation proceeding based on on, on criminal grounds so you know, a lot of black immigrants, what ends up happening is that they end up targeted by police, mm-hmm. arrested, convicted, and end up right there in the in the, in the the immigration system. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, ICE doesn't stop, right? So you commit a crime, this good versus bad immigrant has, you know, has opened the floor for black immigrants to even more be a, a double target. And I've had poems talking about that as well. Is this a reality that makes you more inclined to want to identify with your culture or more inclined to distance yourself? Um, definitely more inclined because what I saw growing up as well when I, when I started organizing and becoming an activist was that black immigrants were never presented at all. So they were yeah. falling through the cracks. Mm-hmm. They were not receiving representation. Mm-hmm. Um, if anything, they were, you know, there, there was, for example, de Blasio had, a um, allocated millions of dollars, like, I think it was like a million dollars for funds in New York for immigration services. Except those immigration services were not provided for people that had uh, serious crimes or like serious convictions. So what ends up happening is that black immigrants end up neglected, Mm -hmm. you know, and we don't take into consideration how mass incarceration intersects with deportation. Right. So if anything, um, it made me more inclined to represent black immigrants, right, and mm-hmm. have a voice for black immigrants. Because what I saw in the immigration movement was a lot, a lot of brown folks mm-hmm. that did not, you know, that did not represent me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's and that's and that's really important. And I do think that the immigrant rights movement is slowly but surely recognizing and realizing that that there we have to be a more diverse and inclusive movement because. That's exactly right what you were saying, that that black immigrants get deported at much higher rates than non-black immigrants. And it's a big issue. And so that's why I love uh, groups like uh, Undocu Black that are really oh, yeah. trying to you know represent black immigrants and, and the, the specific needs of the black immigrant community. Definitely. And, you know, it was very monumental to me when Black Lives Matter joined the fight. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. You know, and they stood for for immigrant rights because what we see a lot is a division between, you know, Black Lives Matter and police brutality 
and immigration because mm -hmm. immigration is always seen as just a Latino issue. Mm -hmm. So what they did that was so, so important was create that bridge, mm -hmm. right? At least in, in the media. Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking about like all three of us here. Like I, I consider myself Latina mm -hmm. right? and I don't mind being referred to as Latina. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm wondering whether you whether you identify with that term Latina or you prefer Latinx, like what's your relationship like with that term? To be honest, I'm still trying to work it out mm -hmm. um, because I feel like Latina has let me down many times. In what ways? And what do you mean? When people think Latina, they never think someone that looks like me. Hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that's the, what the term, how the term Afro Latina came about, right? This kind of, uh, of, of reclaiming of Latinidad, but including blackness in it. Right. So it's very frustrating seeing the discourse around Latinidad and never seeing myself included. Right. Never seeing myself in the conversation mm -hmm. and seeing the racism. Right. Within our own community. Right. So when I came to the U.S., Latina was my term. Right. I never identify mm -hmm. with being black because being black is not something Dominicans even know that they are. Mm -hmm. So Latina was always my go to term. But when I started learning more about my identity and my blackness, I realized that Latina had neglected me, hmm. right? So it's something that I'm still working out. Am I Latina or would I rather call myself Afro-Latina or mm -hmm. would I rather not call myself anything at all and just allow people to, you know, take me in and change their perception of me, right? Because I'm pretty sure that, you know, the abuelitos in, in my apartment complex are still wondering where I'm from. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure. They're too afraid to ask. Spanish, right? Yeah, yeah, So yeah. it's something that I'm still working through and something that I think about often, you know? Right now, I think I feel more comfortable using Afro-Latina mm -hmm. because the conversation is so important. Yeah. And I think it, it is really shedding light on, on the issues that we're facing within the Latino community. Thank you so much for joining us. This was such an amazing conversation. I mean, we could talk to you for so much longer um you're so amazing we love the work that you're doing please keep doing it oh thank you so much thank you for having me oh wait before we leave can we have you recite a poem <gasps> a quick poem for us hmm so much so i have one about uh uh, blackness and being undocumented and it's sort of about you know being at the intersection of mass incarceration mass deportation i love that this is a petty love poem for the last man I love. You see, I am the woman after the girl talking. And you're no longer the light at the end of the tunnel. You're the tunnel itself. Let every woman before me and after know that I loved you into a better version of yourself so you and they are all welcome. I don't love you anymore. But black boy, I still owe you an apology because you were never meant to become a crossroad an intersection of mass incarceration and mass deportation. You did not fly three continents to be called dangerous. So undocumented black boy, I'm sorry that they used you for target practice, that when the guns don't work, they use deportation as an alternative, that they don't have the rifle over xenophobia and racism and rename you two birds, one stone. But if I can make a metamorphosis out of every argument we ever had and every toxic word we ever whispered, I'll turn them into love letters and I'll deliver them straight to the heart of every bigot who has never been blinded by the beauty of your smile. Undocumented black boy, when they call your smile a grimace, when they call it talking back and snapping back, when there are too many witnesses who take your life, so instead, 
they ask you for your papers. Remind them that there's a Dominican woman you done did everything to and still forgave you. An atheist, you may believe her enough to pray for you every day to come home. You make them possible, possible, so how dare they mess with you, undocumented black boy. Three years have passed since we moved on, since I opened up my wings and let you go, but I'm still waiting on your call. The one that comes at 3 p.m. when you finally swallow that pride and you whisper those three beautiful words, words that will crack me open like ice dust. On New York City sidewalks as I slip and fall all over again, call me up on a Sunday afternoon and tell me, Dangeli, I am safe. Don't you worry about my deportation or my death anymore, undocumented black boy. I still pray. Your best friend never calls me crying or sobbing because the cop confused your hands for shotguns, your wit for resistance, and then calls your, calls your existence illegal. I hope I get to see the day that another woman creates a child with your eyes and your birthmark. I hope I get to see the day that you walked down the aisle dressed in nothing but survival. Prove to me that prayers do in fact work because I get to see you grow wrinkled and old with the woman you love. You see, the only thing more painful than you moving on is you never having the ability to do so. So do so. Live. Breathe. Because there's an atheist, Dominican woman you done did everything to. Who till this day prays for your safety. Oh. <laughs> oh my god that was heavy <laughs> i loved it thank you thank you for sharing that with us oh my god yeah i'm hot no that's great we'll get you some water and a michelada for sure that was oh my god that was incredible thank you for that oh thank you for having me I'm Grace Para and I'm Julie Sarse. Thank you guys so much for listening to the first episode of our very special series looking at Latino identity and the power of the Latino vote. We had so much fun recording this episode and talking about some of our shared experiences that we have as Latinx community. And I also wanted to mention that I have a new book out. It's called Someone Like Me. It's geared towards young readers. And so if there is a kid in your family, please make sure to buy this book for them because I think they'll be they'll really be able to identify with a protagonist that has perhaps some of the experiences that they've had or it'll teach other kids about experiences that they might not be familiar with. Um, and of course, if you want to read this book along with your child or child in your life, you can also buy my adult book, My Underground American Dream. It just came out, um, Someone Like Me just came out September 18th, so make sure to check it out. Get those books and also remember to check out votesaveamerica.com to register to vote, to find out what's on your ballot and learn about some of the amazing candidates that you should be familiar with. Also, if you like this episode, please share it with your friends. We're so excited to bring this to you guys and we'll catch you again next week after some enchiladas.
Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8th, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. 